You're listening to Quintilian, the Latin Teacher Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Sellers. Chiara Soprizio is a senior lecturer in the Department of Classical and Mediterranean Studies at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. She received a BA in Classics from the University of Washington and a PhD in Classics from the University of Southern California. She regularly teaches courses in ancient tragedy, ancient comedy, and classical mythology. And in 2020, she published a book entitled Gender and Sexuality in Juveniles Rome, Satire II and Satire VI, a text that offers translation and commentary on two of Juvenal's most provocative poems. Chiara is also interested in classical reception, and this interest guided her creation of a website called Animated Antiquity, a repository of cartoon representations of the classical world. Clips are organized by decade, going all the way back to a stop-motion animated version of Aesop's The Grasshopper and the Ant Fable, which was produced by a Polish-Lithuanian animator in 1913. I began our conversation by asking Kiara how animated antiquity came about. Um, as with most of the projects we'll probably talk about today, animated antiquity began because of my teaching. I I like using clips, you know, in class, and I've always been an animation fan, just sort of in my own life. And I was finding along the way just clips here and there, things that I thought were really useful in class. There's a, a short film from the 70s that depicts the story of um, the cave in Plato and a couple other little things. And I, I was collecting these things to use in class. And um, pretty soon there were so many of them, I thought, okay, I can't keep them all in my mind. So I need to create a space where I can dump all of this stuff and have it for when I need it. So I thought, I'll just start making a website. Um, and from there, I thought, well, what if I really go out and start looking around actively for things? What will I find? And I thought maybe I'd find 20, you know, cartoons. Um, I knew about Asterix, you know, I knew there were a few Looney Tunes or whatever. But um I had no idea I would find as much as I have. So I know that right now on the website, I have over a hundred entries. And I also have a list, a running list of things I need to add to the website that probably has about 50 more things on it. Uh, so it's been really surprising and wonderful in a way to find so much material. Um, so I still use a lot of it in class. And in fact, I even taught a film course for the first time this last semester where I was able to use some of this material. Um, but yeah, it really was just the product of, of my teaching because I think animation appeals to young people. It's vivid. It's also usually pretty brief, which is kind of nice when you're trying to look for something in class to use. Sure. Um, and it's simple, right? It usually conveys whatever message it's trying to convey in a way that's pretty accessible for students. So I found it to be really useful in the classroom. But yeah, that's where it came from. And it's still growing sure, uh, slowly, but surely, I should say. Yeah. So we obviously don't have time to talk about all 100 plus of these videos, but we'll talk about a few of them. 
You have examples from the 1920s, the 1930s, and the 1940s. But I'd like to begin with an example from the 1950s, a Bugs Bunny cartoon from 1955 called Roman Legionnaire. And of course, that's Legion hyphen H-A-R-E, a classic Bugs Bunny pun, of course, right? Yeah. <laughs> the cartoon is set in the year AD 54. And one of the first images that we see in the film is one of the Colosseum, which of course had not yet been built in the year 54. <laughs> So my question is, you know, you have a lot of these sorts of inaccuracies and anachronisms in these cartoons. Do these bother you? Uh, not particularly. I am not a person that even in live action film, I think we see a lot of liberties taken with um, ancient narratives. And um, I'm not a person who's a stickler for, you know, sticking to the script too much. Um, and I do think that's like an, a great, you know, teaching opportunity in some way, right, is through laughter being able to say, haha, right, like you guys know that the Coliseum was even built then, right? Um, so yeah, so it doesn't particularly bother me. And I find it sort of amusing to see the ways that creators sort of play around with the ancient world um in in making their own worlds and i think animation since it's so freeing you can do anything in some ways you can draw whatever you want um it you have even more license i suppose as a creator even than in live action and so those things don't particularly bother me i mean you know you know you're already in the realm of the unreal <laughs> when you're dealing with cartoons um so yeah, so I, I'm mostly amused by by that type of stuff. Okay, so in Roman Legionnaire, Bugs Bunny is targeted for execution in the Colosseum, but by the end of the film, uh, he has turned the tables on Nero in typical Bugs Bunny fashion, and we see Nero playing the fiddle as he himself is about to be devoured by his own lions. Nero then appears again in the next film I'd like to talk about, jumping ahead to 1968, a Looney Tunes film featuring Daffy Duck and Speedy Gonzalez called See You Later, Gladiator. Uh, in this film, Daffy is irritated by Speedy's mariachi band, and he tries to retaliate against him by putting him in a time machine. As everyone knows from the Back to the Future movies, time travel often goes wrong. Mm -hmm. And by the end of See You Later, Gladiator, Nero returns to the 20th century and he plays the fiddle in Speedy's mariachi band. So what do you make of this, this cultural obsession with Nero? I mean, there are so many other figures from classical antiquity who are more interesting and frankly, more important, more significant. Uh, why do you think these cartoons and pop culture in general keeps returning to Nero over and over and over and over again? Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably a paper or something to be written about cartoon depictions of Nero because there are many more than just these two, actually, interestingly. Um, and it's such a great question of what is our obsession with Nero? I mean, obviously, the stories we have from Suetonius are, you know, so larger than life, riveting, kind of salacious stories. Um, we've, I think, always been really plugged into that. I do think, you know, part of it is the Christian tradition and the role that sort of Nero has played in um, being the sort of, uh, sort of the bad guy, right? The antagonist of the Christians 
which it seems like isn't very accurate either. Right. Um, but for whatever reason that he's become sort of this embodiment of evil as of Roman evil, as it were in a Christian tradition. And so even though these cartoons are not engaged with anything overtly Christian at all, they're just drawing on, on that tradition. So for example, um, in the Roman legionnaire cartoon, Nero is depicted in a figure of Charles Lawton, who played Nero in the film The Sign of the Cross um, from the 1930s, which was very much a movie about, uh, about Christianity. Charles Lawton becomes the sort of signifier of Nero. So there's these like interesting layers of pop culture there, right? He's recognizable as a figure from the film, right? So they then... In- import him into the cartoon and I think that's funny because obviously kids wouldn't have picked up on that um so that gives something to the adults perhaps who are watching this material I'm not really sure but um but yeah I do think we just you know Nero embodies all of the the stereotypes of Roman excess and murder and mayhem that I don't know that just feed our fantasy and I think cartoons like live action film just um, see that as an easy shorthand for depicting Rome. Uh, but it's true that uh, there are probably other figures that are more important. I mean, you know, maybe Julius Caesar and he does get depicted here and there in animation, but not not like Nero. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's a fascinating question. And like I said, there are many more of them out there and each one of them is is sort of unique in his own way but all of them like really over the top kind of crazy kooky weird uh so so yeah I, I don't know that I answer the question but it's definitely a phenomenon and it doesn't really I, I feel like Nero's just as sort of vivid a figure as he was in the 1950s and 60s when these cartoons were made um, sure. as, he, as he is now Okay, to the 1970s now you have a Scooby-Doo cartoon about the Minotaur a Hungarian version of the Sisyphus story, a Belgian animated film about the harpies. And then from 1974, you have Free to Be You and Me, Atalanta. Now this came up in one of my previous Quintilian conversations. For the listeners who haven't heard that episode or who haven't seen this cartoon, could you describe it to them, please? Sure. So in this Free to Be You and Me film, which had lots of different um, little vignettes that corresponded to the original album of music and stories that was produced in 1972, um, the story of Atalanta is sort of recast as a story about gender equality. So Atalanta's dad, the king, says, you need to get married. And she says, I don't really want to get married, but I'll run this race. And you know, if somebody beats me in the race, I'll marry them. So sort of sticking to that original narrative. Um, and then there's John, who, who is like training for the race. I, I don't, He's like a townsperson. He's not even really a prince. Um, That's a great they, classical name, right? John. Yeah, John. <laughs> I know. So they run the race and they finish exactly at the same time together. And uh, they basically, it's sort of strange at the end, the dad says, okay, well, you need to marry each other. And they both say, well, we're going to go off and travel the world. Um, But before they leave, they talk with each other about their interests in science and geography, and they become friends. 
And then they both depart for places unknown. And the narrator says, maybe someday they'll get married and maybe they won't. But both of them are going to go off and live full lives, something like that. Um, So this very sort of, you know, wonderful sort of 70s feminism revision of of this Atalanta story that um, is actually, I think, narrated by, it's Marlo Thomas and then Alan Alda is the the male voice and narrator of the story. So, um, so yeah, I just love, I love how wonderfully, I don't know, I feel like 70s feminism is really encapsulated nicely in that retelling of the story. Okay, to the 1980s now, Animated Antiquity features a Japanese depiction of Aesop, a Trojan War-themed episode of the Smurfs, (laughs) an East (laughs) German cartoon about the sirens, and then you have a fascinating series called Ulysses 31. So tell us about that, Kiara. Yeah, so Ulysses 31 is a French and Japanese co-produced series that came out in the early 80s. Um, I want to say there's like 26 episodes, which tells the story of the Odyssey, but as a space story, sci-fi story. So you can see a lot of interesting lines of influence there. Star Wars, I think, probably being the most important, but it looks very anime, has a lot of um, motifs that I think were popular, like Mecca and things like that from the anime as well. So they are on this spaceship and... um, the spaceship sort of like goes rogue, the computer gets taken over and it says it's going to like go off the course, right? They're on their way back to Ithaca and then the computer like goes haywire um, and ends up, the spaceship ends up taking them to all these different lands. And some of the lands, you know, um, it's interesting because Ulysses, I should say, not Odysseus, is, is with Telemachus, but then Telemachus gets kidnapped by the Cyclops um and you and Ulysses has to go in and save him and then find his way back home so they go on many adventures that correspond to the Odyssey but there are also many other adventures that um are just from Greek mythology more generally and the and the, the series ends with a trip to Hades um which actually does happen in the Odyssey right um and there is this sort of like time travel component to it where like the old Ulysses has to come back and help the new Ulysses, um, you know, get home to Penelope. Uh, so it's really, it's a really beautiful, actually. I love the visual aspect of, of the cartoon. And um, it was wildly popular among young people in Europe, in particular, I think, in the early 80s. It didn't really happen in the United States as much, but you can watch it all online. Um, but yeah, I definitely think it's, uh, probably was the best known um, reinterpretation of myth and animation that existed until maybe, you know, Disney's Hercules came out in the 90s, uh, inter- like worldwide, um, not so much in the States, like I said, but uh, it was pretty popular. So it's got, yeah, it's got a lot of different pieces from mythology sort of thrown into the, the grand narrative of the Odyssey, but all set in space. In the 31st century, Yes, the 31st century, hence Ulysses 31, yeah. Okay, so from the 1990s, you have a couple of rather mature examples. Oh, yes. (laughs) You have a British film called Achilles that focuses on the the homoerotic relationship between Achilles and and Patroclus. And then you have a, a Russian cartoon depicting with graphic nudity the Daphne and Apollo story. So... 
In my experience, you know, students who have never read Ovid's version of this myth tend to romanticize this story. They tend to think of this as a lovely story about a man, an innocuous story about a man who falls in love with a woman. Um, if they read Ovid's version of the story, the language of that poem makes it very clear that the terror of Daphne and the potential of sexual violence. And I think that this cartoon captures that same violent spirit uh, very well. So what was your reaction to this film when you first saw it? Well, this film is actually one of several films that was made by this creator whose name is currently escaping me, but maybe he'll come to me in a minute. And he was really obsessed with um, accuracy and like, not just in terms of the storytelling, but also in terms of the depictions of the figures in a classical vein. Um, and so there's an actually like a first and second part to Daphne. There's the first part is called the birth of Eros and the second part is called Daphne. And it tells the story of Aphrodite giving birth to Eros. And it sort of revisions the myth somewhat from what Ovid tells us. And it's figured as a, like a revenge story, which it sort of is an Ovid that Cupid wants to get back at Apollo, right? Um, and in this story, it's sort of taken even further that Aphrodite wants to get back at all the gods and prove to them that she's, you know, the one who really has the most power. And so um, the story really proceeds much in keeping with what we see in Ovid um, and Cupid, you know, shoots Apollo and, and the nudity. It's interesting because people, I, I wouldn't say this is very erotic at all, although it does have a lot of nudity in it, which I actually I like because I do think it shores up the idea that this isn't particularly romantic, like you said, right? It sort of undercuts that popular idea that we have of like, oh, Apollo like falls in love and um, kind of depicts it as something a little bit more sinister. He's sort of, you know, not, you know, he's acting out of this impulse because he's been shot with the air of Cupid. Um, and he's almost like in a trance or something, right? Chasing after her. So even the, you can tell that the, that the artist um, was super keen on depicting these classical bodies in these very traditional ways, um, that nudity is really an important part of that. But it's it does sort of, I think, present us with a maybe a more accurate image of the story and one that's more troubling, right? Um, and also really keen to, I think, depict in visual terms how the gods manipulate people and each other, right, um, right. into doing things that maybe they wouldn't normally do. So um, so I, I actually rather like these, and they're kind of weird because they're erotic, I would say, I guess, whatever. Um, that's very rare in Russian animation. We do not see this sort of adult material or this very, you know, a lot of nudity in Russian animation. And it's sort of interesting because these were produced um, right about the time the the Soviet Union fell. Yeah, yeah. So we see, a, I think, a little bit more freedom on the part of animators in that period. And that seems to be manifest here as well, which is kind of interesting in and of itself. Um, but there's two other ones that he made. And I'm, kick, I'm kicking myself that his name is not coming to me right now. Um, but he made one about um, 
Oh, goodness. It's uh, Galatea and Polyphemus. And okay. there's one about um, oh, Salamachus, which is such a rare story in Ovid yeah. that most people aren't familiar with. So it's just really wonderful that that story exists in animated form. Um because it, it's a very unusual story too about female desire and you know this woman sort of attack attacking this man or whatever kind right. of grabbing him in the water right um so they're very interesting very unique very special pieces of of animation that i i really like you're listening to quintilian the latin teacher podcast Quintilian is supported by a Bridge Initiative grant from the Committee for the Promotion of Latin and Greek, a division of the Classical Association of the Middle West and South. More information about these grants is available at camwis.org. That's C-A-M-W-S dot O-R-G. If you're enjoying Quintilian, please give us a rating and or a review on your favorite podcast distribution platform. Okay, so let's jump to the 21st century now. From 2002, you have the Simpsons retelling of the Odyssey, which is fantastic. Homer plays Odysseus, Marge plays Penelope, Ned Flanders plays Priam. Uh, <laughs> you have not disco stew, but discus stew. Discus stew, yeah. Classic, right? Uh, from 2012, you have uh, an Italian film, Gladiatore di Roma, this big budget Pixar style film, which I think did have a run in US theaters, didn't it? Uh, under the title Gladiators of Rome. Yes, I think so. Yeah. And I, I know it used to be on Amazon Prime, it may still be on Amazon Prime. And then from 2014, you have this BBC film called Life in Roman Britain. <clears throat> and, you know, to me, it seems like this five minute, relatively anodyne educational video about the Romanization of Britannia, very bland stuff. And yet this video provoked an absolute firestorm. NPR covered this. The BBC News covered this. Mary Beard got involved in this. Uh, there was a write-up in the Atlantic about this. So, what what happened? So, the film um, depicts a Rome, and I would say an upper class Roman family as being a mixed race family with a, a black dad and mixed race children. Um, I think he's like a general and meant to be perhaps depicting a real man that we have attested who was maybe from, I want to say Algeria or somewhere in North Africa. And so, you know, for whatever reason, well, for many reasons, I would say that are sadly relevant in the world that we're living in right now, this just provoked a lot of ire and angst over being uh, historically inaccurate, that there were not Black people in Britannia or that, you know, that it was not a multicultural society and uh, we were trying to import our values back into history in an, an anachronistic way. Um, and, you know, looking back at it just in preparation for this, it sort of, I mean, it surprised me, but it also doesn't surprise me that, you know, 
there's always something to get upset about on the internet. You know, you have to have your outrage du jour. The fact that it was over this like five minute educational cartoon does definitely seem baffling to me because as most of the people who came out and defended the choice to make this in the way that it was made, we have very great evidence for the multicultural aspect of Britannia. Um, I was actually just in England. I visited Vindolanda. I went to Roman Bath. Uh, yeah, it was wonderful. And um, we know that soldiers came from all over the empire to build Hadrian's Wall, for sure. example. So I just, I found it actually just really surprising. And one of those moments where, yes, you realize your job as a historian, you know, sometimes has to be an activist job that you have to say, push back and say like, no, actually, um, we have really great evidence for the fact that people from all over the place were, you know, residing in Britannia. And and surely the BBC would not have chosen to make a film in this manner, in an offhand way. Like they probably did their homework. You know, mm-hmm. you I, I don't understand why people wouldn't give them the benefit of the doubt that they didn't just randomly put a person of color into this film. It seems like they probably had good reason to do so. And if you just dug a little bit deeper than what you saw in the, in the cartoon, you might come to understand that. But, you know, um, unfortunately, the world we're living in today, it, there's a lot of that sort of like surface response to things. You're, you know, you're just going to see something and react. You're not going to go do your homework. Um, and I think that that's basically what happened here, unfortunately. But, you know, the flip side of that is that I bet that video got viewed thousands and thousands more times than it would have otherwise. So maybe people did end up learning something about ancient Britannia and the people who live there than even the creators might have anticipated. You know, you got to think like all attention is good attention sometimes when I think when it comes to media and, um, you know, publicity. So... Okay, so before we move on uh, beyond the topic of animation, what are some of your favorite animated depictions of the classical world that we haven't already discussed? Oh, gosh, that's a tough question. And um, I mean, I'm I'm writing a paper right now, and I get that's based on a talk I gave about some of the Russian animation that was made. I particularly like the material that was made in the early 1970s. Um, I'm kind of a vintage gal and um, the 1970s were a time of lots of experimentation in art as a result of all of the sort of, I think, social movements that were happening in the late 60s and, and early 70s. And I think animation became an easier medium to work in because technologically speaking, um, because of the transition from theatrical release to television and just other things about the machines that are involved in making animation. And so you get an explosion of independent film, um, of material that's sort of engaged with more adult themes and mythology becomes what's more popular. Surprisingly, mythology actually isn't something that's depicted a lot in early animation. It's something that really emerges in the in the 70s. Um, so for example, there's a series of Russian cartoons that were made in the early 1970s that uh, the first one tells the story of Hercules, but it's not any story of Hercules you've ever heard before. 
Um, they were made by the Ministry of Education of the USSR to educate people, I think young people in particular, about Greek mythology. So there's one about Theseus, there's one about Perseus, there's one about Prometheus. But they're sort of tinged with, I would say, like Soviet values. Um, so they tell the stories a bit differently than we might expect. And the art is amazing in them, but they're also just really mind-blowing and fascinating um, there's also a film from around that time called Cleopatra that was made in Japan that um, is a feature length film about Cleopatra. It's an X-rated film, but it's not actually X-rated. <laughs> so it said it was part of the marketing to say it was the first X-rated cartoon ever made. But if you watched it, you'd be very disappointed if you were looking for um, something X-rated. Um, but it, <laughs> it's interesting because it's super historically detailed, although it's like also inflected with this, with time travel and, and space. So it's like these people go back in time to figure out how to save their world. They're going to learn this from observing what Cleopatra did in her relationships with um, Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. Um, and it's just the most bizarro Thing you've ever seen because it's also being made from a Japanese perspective. So their take on what that story was about is, is rather different, even though you can tell that they've studied the sources really well and it's very well grounded in the sources. That movie's just a crazy trip. Um, so I, I really like things that are a little bit off the beaten path, a little bit weird, um, stuff like that. Uh, that's just my my wheelhouse. But there's a lot of really wonderful stuff being made even right now. We're living in a golden age of, of animation that's related to ancient Greece and Rome. So um, a movie came out this year in France called Icar or Icarus. It tells the story of Icarus, a feature length film that I'm really hoping will get distributed here in the United States. Um, the show Crapopolis is about to premiere in, in the fall on Fox, which is made by Dan Harmon, who makes Rick and Morty, and it's set in the ancient world. Um, there's like uh, Blood of Zeus, which a lot of people really like. That was on Netflix last year. So even right now, I feel like there's a lot going on um, that, you know, there's something for everybody out there if you like, if you like this kind of material. Including an X-rated film from Japan about Cleopatra. <laughs> yes, I know. I mean, you <laughs> if I were to tell my students that they would be all <laughs> yes, over that. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's really, it's not, it, it, I think that was as much a marketing play as anything. And it's sort of a sweet, you know, what constituted that in the early seventies is I think very different from what we think of in our sure. minds today. Sure. Um, but yeah, probably not one for the classroom. Going to put that out there. <laughs> Definitely not. All right, so let's change gears now. Uh, in addition to your interest in classical reception, you also have an interest in more of an employment-related issue in classics. For many years, I know you've been an advocate for contingent faculty. So for the benefit of those in the audience who are not familiar with this term as it applies to higher education, could you explain that? What does that term contingent faculty exactly mean? So contingent faculty are people who work in the university as faculty, but not on the tenure track. So um, this could be part-time adjunct workers. This could be uh, full-time lecturers. Part of the problem is that there's lots of terminology for this group of people. Sometimes they're called NTT or non-tenure track workers. Sometimes they're called 
precarious, they have precarious employment. That's a word we use a lot as well. Um, it's basically anybody who's not an assistant, associate, or full professor. And there are a lot of us. In fact, there are more of us, generally speaking, in the United States, teaching um, at the university level than there are tenure stream professors. Um, though the gamut of what it means to be contingent can really vary in and of itself. So at most American universities, something like two-thirds of the courses, right, are, are taught by these contingent faculty members, which means that most of the classes taught in American colleges and universities are taught by people who have no long-term job security. Obviously, this is bad for the teachers themselves. Why is this also bad for students, do you think? Um, well, we have a phrase in uh, kind of continued faculty organizing that, um, you know, that the employment conditions are the student learning conditions, right? Um, so contingent faculty, uh, employment conditions are student learning conditions. So if you have a professor teaching you who maybe isn't going to be there next semester or next year, um, or who teaches at three different universities in one semester or two different universities in one semester and are not able to just be present or who don't have an office um, a lot of times, you know, it's very difficult to engage with them outside of class um, to, I think, form meaningful relationships or bonds with those professors through time. Um, so, you know, lots of times, for example, students want read letters of recommendation from somebody who they've taken a lot of classes with because contingent faculty teach a lot more, I would say, usually have loads that are bigger than uh, non-tenure or than tenure stream faculty. And so um, you spend a lot of time with these people in class and then they disappear and they can't write you a letter anymore because sure. they're not employed at the university anymore. Um so I do think, you know, when you're spread thin, when you're not, uh, you know, being paid perhaps at the at a level that you can be, you know, living comfortably at, that just is going to take away from your ability to really be fully present and be doing your best work in the classroom because you're worrying about other things. And I think it's a morale issue as well, right? I'm, I'm just, not me personally, but, you know, you it's hard to be as invested in the life of the university and in the success of your students when you're not really a fully fledged member of that community, when you're always sort of looking for, you know, what's next or am I going to have a contract next semester? So, um, so I do think, you know, I know a lot of contingent faculty members who are absolutely stunning and amazing teachers because we spend a lot of time in the classroom. So we get really good at what we do, but, um, you know, it does certainly, I think, just change the tenor of um, of your relationship to to everything you're doing, to the to the to the university itself, to your students, um, to the work. So it's uh, it's a it's a problem, and it's been a problem for a long time, and it's it's not really going anywhere, I don't think. So the, I think the question now is like. How do we minimize some of those negative aspects? How do we incorporate uh, contingent faculty in a way that's more meaningful and more, you know, sort of uh, that acknowledges their contribution? Um, I would say not just in financial terms, but in other ways as well. 
There are very few tenure track positions in the field of classics at universities relative to the number of students pursuing PhDs. And this is not just a, an issue in classics, it's an issue for all the humanities and other fields as well. Some cynical people have described this system as a glorified pyramid scheme. Do you think that that is a fair description? I mean, I see where they're coming from. I think that's a little bit extreme because I don't think it's <clears throat> I don't think it's a system that was created with the intent to like defraud or mislead anyone. I just think unfortunately the university is a large, very slow moving creature, right? Um it it takes a long time for a university to adjust. It's not nimble. So we are uh, still doing things, I would say, in PhD programs in a way that probably reflects the realities on the ground of employment from the 70s or the 80s, right? Um, and we haven't really pivoted to, to the new reality. And part of that is because graduate students do a lot of teaching in these programs. And a lot of times graduate students are counted as contingent faculty. When we talk about those numbers, two thirds of, of faculty are doing teaching um, at a university that includes graduate students usually. Um, so, so, you know, I, I don't wanna say that number is misleading, but I do think graduate students are their own sort of special category of, of person in this instance. Um, so, you know, I do think it's time for PhD programs and classics to look in the mirror and probably make big adjustments. And I know some of them are, um, we, I, I don't think anybody is, um, well, I think very few people are living under sort of the illusion that, you know, we can just keep going the, the way we've been going and, and churning out PhDs without any job prospects and expecting them to, to, to make it on the tenure track. But unfortunately, um, you know, it takes a lot of time. It's, it's super difficult to, to revamp a PhD program. And that's not just, even if the people in the program themselves want to make changes, there's so much bureaucracy to be dealt with at all the levels of the university that that can be a really long and arduous process. So I can see why some people might be very daunted by that or reluctant to pursue that, especially when they have their own things to be worried about, burnout and publishing and you know everything else that's been going on. But I, you know, I just don't think there's any other alternative. It, it just has to be done. Um, and what that's going to look like is up for debate as well. Um, but I do think, uh, you know, kudos to the programs out there who are, are facing it head on, which they're, they're out there. But it's, it's a long and difficult task to, to make those changes. Okay, I'd like to hear more of your personal story. Let's turn back the clock now. So where did you grow up and how did you first develop an interest in the classical world? So I grew up in Carson City, Nevada, a very small town, capital city of Nevada. Um, and we had one high school in our town. Um, I really loved Spanish. I took Spanish and um, I was always really into foreign languages. And so I went on study abroad when I was a junior in high school to Spain. And I lived in the suburbs of Madrid for a year where I went to school. And when you go to school in Europe, 
um, a lot of times in high school, you have to choose like a track, right? So you're on the math track or the letters track. So at my high school, there was only a pure letters track or pure math track. And I wasn't going to take math in Spanish. I was already pretty bad at math and English. Um, so I decided to do the letters track and I took Latin and Greek and I loved it. And I loved the teacher I had there in particular. She was a really interesting, wonderful woman. Um, and so when I came back to the States, I had one more year to finish up. And of course, at my high school, we didn't have anything Greek or Latin. So when I went off to college, I, um, I decided to become a classics major. I did my first year of university at the University of Oregon. And I don't know if this still exists, but back in the day, they had this thing called the Western Undergraduate Exchange, where if you did certain majors, you were able to pay in-state tuition instead of out-of-state tuition. And classics was one of the majors that if you went you know, to Oregon, that they would count you as in-state. And Oregon was lovely, but I, it was a bit of a culture shock for me coming from the desert to living in the rainy Pacific Northwest, uh, small town, Eugene, which is, I love Eugene now, but when I was 18, it was not quite lively enough for me. So I transferred and went to the University of Washington. I did continue to study classics there and I got a wonderful education um, from there. And I just kept going. Graduate, And I worked, you know, all sorts of interesting jobs that year and decided, okay, I'm going to keep going. Um, and I ended up going to the University of Southern California for the, for the PhD. Um, and, you know, somehow you just don't, you keep going, you don't stop. I'm the kind of person who, you know, I, I would say perseverance is one of my strengths. So if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it, even if it takes forever. If I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. So I, I finished up in 2007 um, and I wrote my dissertation about Aristophanes. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, I would have to tie back my love of classics certainly to that year that I spent abroad in Spain. If I hadn't have done that, I don't think I would have ever discovered Latin and Greek and been able to take the path that I did. Okay, so you finished your PhD in 2007, and then what came next for you? <clears throat> well, um, the Great Recession is what came next for me and for many other people who finished that year. Uh, I was a really crappy time to finish. I'm not going to lie. And so there were not really any jobs. Um, I ended up <clears throat> staying at USC for a year as a lecturer. That was very nice of them to create a space for me there. And then I had a, another one-year job at Hamilton College in upstate New York, which was lovely, uh, but short-lived. And then I decided to move back to Los Angeles um, my soon to be husband at the time had gotten a job. He's also in classics as these things tend to go. And I decided I would rather be with him in Los Angeles in a place that was familiar to me than taking a really crappy one year job somewhere else and doing the same thing all over again. So I went back to LA and I ended up teaching at Loyola Marymount University as a contingent faculty member for the next four and a half years. And, um, 
you know, I enjoyed my time there, but it was hard. I taught four four, which is four classes a semester. And I really, I, I worked a lot and I became, I think, very versatile. I taught all sorts of different courses. I, you know, I just did whatever I had to do to, to stay involved and to keep my job. And, um, and then finally, after many, many years of trying every year being on the job market and my husband doing the same, we decided to get off the merry-go-round. None, neither of us ever managed to uh, secure a tenure-track job. And so my husband ended up taking a job teaching at a boys' school here in Nashville. And so we decided to move to Nashville. And I actually spent two years not working at all. I had um, We had a child by then, and so I actually spent some time raising him. And I thought I was done. I thought I was leaving academia. And um, I tried to do lots of different things. Uh, in the meantime, I cultivated a lot of different interests. It was a it was a difficult time, but it was an important time for me, I think, to just explore myself and, um, you know, what other possibilities were out there for me. Okay, so you live in Nashville, as you said. Uh, this is a city that has a number of nicknames, some more flattering than others, right? Uh, Nash Vegas is one of them. <laughs> yes. Cashville. Smashville, the buckle of the Bible Belt. One of the more flattering nicknames of Nashville, however, is the Athens of the South. And it uh, one of the reasons for that nickname is the Nashville Parthenon. So for those who are not familiar with the Nashville Parthenon, can you tell the audience what that is? Yeah, so the Nashville Parthenon is a museum. Um but it's, I guess, more than a museum. It's a replica building of the Athenian Parthenon. Uh, it is a one-to-one replica. So in its dimensions, its size, and its shape, everything are exactly built to um, to be the same as, as that in Athens. It's not made out of marble, <laughs> however. And that would have been a little bit too expensive. But it was built in 1896 and 1897 for the Centennial Exposition, which was a big celebration of a hundred years of Tennessee statehood. I would, I, you know, I give tours there. I'm a docent there. And when I moved here, I felt like I had to be involved with this building. It's very special building. Um, Inside it has a cult statue of Athena. That's also made to be a replica. Obviously we don't have the original cult statue of Athena Parthenos anymore, but it was built to be as close to an approximation of that as possible. And so, yes, when I moved to Nashville, I said, I have to be involved with this building somehow. It's like right in my backyard. Um, It's wonderful sort of weird (laughs) place that's not really, I mean, it's exactly like another place, but it's not like anything else I think we have in the United States. So I became a docent there uh, pretty much right when I moved here. And so I give tours there and the structure, yeah, it was built as, a temporary structure, interestingly, one of many structures that were built in Centennial Park as part of what I would describe as sort of like a world's fair. When I give a tour, I say it's kind of like a world's fair on a slightly smaller scale, this Centennial Exposition. So the structure was built with the intention of taking it down after six months at the end of the exposition, but it ended up 
just sort of staying because it was the building that Nashville in particular had contributed to the exposition. And they built it because at that time, um, the, the sort of, I, I always say the PR name of Athens, right, was the Athens of the South. Um, I think it was in the post-Civil War era that, you know, they were really trying to rehab the image of the city as a center of learning and knowledge and culture. Um, and the building itself actually served as an art gallery during the exposition. And so um, it did end up sitting there and kind of falling apart for about 20 years before the city of Nashville decided that they were going to um, reconstruct the building, turn it into a permanent structure. So that took about 10 years. Um, they decided to do that in 1920. So the structure that is now with what you see now when you go there was completed around 19, I want to say 1929, 1930. <clears throat> and one of the really cool and sort of unusual things about it is it is a publicly owned museum. It's owned by Metro Nashville. It's a part of the city parks um, department, which is very rare for a museum. Usually museums are privately owned. So it really belongs to the city. Um, and it's just such a wonderful sort of oddity. I'm so glad, I always say, you know, nowadays they probably would have just torn it down, but I'm so glad that the city leaders of Nashville in the 1920s decided that this was worth keeping and maintaining and preserving um, because it shows us a picture, a different picture of Nashville than the one that we have now of Music City of Nash Vegas. Um, and bachelorette and parties. And bachelorette parties, <laughs> yes, woo girls and, and pedal taverns and all right, of right, this right. stuff, which, you know, has its charms, certainly. Uh, but it's uh, it's just a little snapshot in time of, of a different Nashville. And um, it's just such a wonderfully immersive experience. I love being able to take my students there. Um, I love giving tours. I give tours to all sorts of different groups, a lot of fifth and sixth graders, because that's when they do Greece and Rome in their uh, curriculum. And they're so wonderful. They want to tell you all about all the things they know about Greek mythology. And they ask you a million amazing questions, like, why is everybody naked on the building? Um, you know, so you really learn how to talk about antiquity to groups that are non-specialist groups that don't have any background in this material and really synthesize that for them and make it accessible and fun. So I love um, being a docent. It's a great sort of outreach thing that I'm able to do here because because of this wonderful and weird building. So are you familiar with a book called Pilgrimage to Dollywood? Yes, I am. Actually. Okay, so this is a 2014 book by Helen Morales, who's a classicist. It's very much about Dolly Parton, uh, but sort of through a classical lens. And she takes a road trip through Tennessee, sort of a musical road trip from west to east. So Graceland in Memphis, Loretta Lynn's compound near the Tennessee River, the Grand Ole Opry, and then Dollywood. And she goes to the Parthenon, and she very briefly mentions some modern-day pagans, maybe for lack of a better word, who actually do come to the Parthenon in Nashville to worship the goddess Athena. And I found this to be really fascinating. So do you have any experience with this? Does this really happen? You know, it does happen. I, I won't say it happens frequently. I've never seen seen myself personally any um 
active ritual happening, but we frequently do find objects that have been left for the goddess, little offerings. Um, and Lauren, who uh, runs the, the museum, usually keeps them all in her office. So we'll find little shells or flowers or necklaces or things that, that people will will leave there as dedications to the goddess, which is sweet. Um, one thing that does happen there a lot, which I always think is hilarious, is that you can rent out the Parthenon for a private event, including weddings. So people get married in the Parthenon all the time. And I always say, you know, she's a virgin goddess. <laughs> <laughs> I just, and she's anti-marriage, right? If we know one thing about Athena, well, maybe not all, you know. we know In a rather belligerent fashion too. <laughs> right, you know, so I say, gosh, I don't know if I'd want that 40 foot statue standing over me as I was taking my wedding vows. That just seems a little, <laughs> little hokey, a little bit off, but hey, you know, whatever people want to do, they should do. I mean, it's an amazing space, so I get it. Absolutely. But I'm like, I don't know about that. That just seems a little bit strange. So, um, so we do have ritual going on there. Uh, I would say more frequently of that sort than of the pagan sort, but it does certainly happen. And I think like on the solstices and stuff, we do get some pagan visitors sometimes. Okay, great. Our time is running a bit thin, uh, but I do want to cover one more topic briefly before we move on to our closing segment. Sure. In 2020, you published a book called Gender and Sexuality in Juveniles Rome. So I took a course on Roman satire during my last semester of as an undergraduate. That's where I first read Juvenal. And I remember finding him to be challenging, infuriating, shocking, awkward, and hilarious all at the same time. So what made you decide to, to tackle a, a new translation and commentary on Juvenal? That's a really great way of describing, I think, you know, my own experience as well with Juvenile. Um, he really provokes, right? Uh, you can't really be neutral about him. You either love him or hate him or a little bit of both. And again, for me, this project was born out of my teaching because I, I teach a sex and gender in the ancient world class, a lecture course, not a, um, a language course. And I found that you know, you can't teach that class without teaching Juvenile Six in particular, which is the big satire against women and against marriage in particular. <clears throat> and I just found that there was not really a good translation out there to teach with. I was really not satisfied with what I found. I like things were dated. They were too British. Um, they were too sort of uh, literal. Um, and so I was like, you know what, I just need to make this for my students. Um, something that's eh, accessible for them, relatable, because the thing about comedy, you know, which I think anyone who studies comedy ancient or otherwise realizes comedy is very topical. The references are sometimes very obscure because we don't have the cultural you know, uh, we don't live in that milieu anymore. So it's like, what is he talking about? What, you know, who's this person that's just being casually mentioned, right? Um, so that makes it very challenging. And the Latin is hard, right? Um, so I, I kind of took it as a bit of a challenge for myself. I thought, you know, if I can translate this Latin, then that means I'm a pretty good Latinist. 
Um, but I, my main motivation was to create a text that I could use in this course in particular. And I do teach Roman satire as a Latin course also, and I do use it in that class as well to supplement because sometimes we can't read the entire thing because it's 600 lines and that's a lot to ask of any poor undergrad. Um, so my friend Sarah Blake and I got together. I worked on the translation those years that I was unemployed in between moving to Nashville and getting my job at Vanderbilt. I spent a lot of that time working on the translation. And then I asked her to write an introduction that really sort of synthesizes um, the dynamics of sexuality and gender difference in Roman culture for an undergraduate audience. So the book is really geared towards students, although I think, you know, anybody could could probably pick it up and, and get something out of it. Um, and it was, uh, you know, kind of a way to, to master Juvenal because he is so infuriating and misogynistic and horrible. Um, so just being able to kind of make it my own, uh, was, was part of the project. Um, but also, like I said, to just, uh, make this very challenging text, something that, that students could read and actually understand. Um, so I think I did a good job. I don't know. <laughs> like I have been using it in class. I succeeded in my aim. So to me, that makes me happy that I'm able to use it, uh, with my students. They seem like they like it. So, you know, um, so far, so good. But it's, uh, I hadn't ever done anything like that before. I'd never really fancied myself a translator. And so it was a little bit of a personal challenge for me as well to just see if I could do it. And, and it was not easy. It's, it's a tough job being a translator. That's for sure. Um, especially of such a challenging text, but, um, but I'm, I'm very proud of the, the product that resulted from it. And I'm grateful to my friend, Sarah Blake also for her wonderful introduction that is, is so great. So as you said, juvenile is often characterized as being horrible and misogynistic. You could add to that list homophobic sure. and xenophobic. Absolutely. So what do you make of those criticisms? And do you think that juvenile himself had those views? Right. So, you know, we have this big debate over persona in satire and some other genres of, of literature. And like, is this, you know, is this the real juvenile? Well, juvenile is one of those authors, probably the author we know the least about, I would say out of everyone in Roman literature that we have a name for. Um, so it's very difficult to know who the real juvenile is and who the, you know, the, the, the persona juvenile is. I like to use the lens of stand-up comedy as a way to sort of, um, unpack this conundrum, particularly for my students, right? So we think about the performer Dave Chappelle versus the real Dave Chappelle, who's another person who's, you know, been having a lot of drama lately over transphobic comments that he's made on stage. Um, and I think, you know, I appreciate the the discourse or the theory of the persona as a mask, as a, as a performance, right. That, that these authors would put on in these public recitations. But I do think they have to probably reflect something that underlies the, the mask because it wouldn't be a very persuasive performance if you didn't feel like the person giving it didn't really have some, I don't know, investment in the things that were coming out of their mouth. Right. 
Um, but of course, we'll never really know 100% did he really believe these things or not. I mean, I do think it's a it's a trope, right? It's, you know, he's that guy. He's the guy who's going to say all the things that nobody else would say or, you know, really be all of those horrible things, misogynistic, homophobic, right? Um, be He's a hater. He's a hater. That's what he is. That's his style of comedy. Um, but I do think, yes, they reflect anxieties that are very much present in Roman society in the period that he's writing. And I do think on some level, we have to imagine that whoever he was, he was probably a conservative guy that, you know, really did, you know, be, you know, believe what he was putting out there on certain level, right? I don't think it could all just be for show because, you, you know, writing hundreds of lines of poetry like that, um, that's an investment of your time and energy. And I'm just not sure that somebody would undertake to do that without being somewhat invested in the message that they were sending. So, you know, maybe I'm sort of trying to have it both ways here, but I do, you know, it's, it, again, it's sort of an impossible question, but I like to talk about that, like I said, through the lens of stand-up comedy. I think that can be a useful way into understanding maybe the difference between what's on the page and what's the real person is like what's on the stage versus, you know, what the real person is, is, is about. Great analogy. Okay, time to move on to our closing segment now. Sex carissimae race, six of your most beloved things, six of your favorite things as a classicist. Yeah. Number one, Kiara, what is your favorite Latin textbook? And yes, you are allowed to say gender and sexuality <laughs> in juveniles Rome. Oh, okay. So I thought you meant like just intro text. So I was like, well, I wouldn't say it's my favorite, but it's Wheelock because Wheelock is the only thing I've ever taught out of. And it's the thing I learned out of. So love it or not, it's like Wheelock is my life. Okay. <laughs> um, but I would say if I could pick like a, you know, some, maybe a subject text, like author text or something, um, you know, that's a good question. Actually. I, I really love to I love teaching Petronius. I teach Petronius out of LaWall's book, which um, I really like. That's one of my definite faves. Um, trying to think what else I, you know, I'm just going to stick with that one. I'm going to say the Petronius, um, the LaWall's Petronius is a really fun text that I think suits the students really well. Okay, great. Number two, what is your favorite place to visit in Italy? I know you were there this summer. <clears throat> I was. This is a really hard question. Um, so, I mean, I think I have to say Rome, even though I was a little bit over it. You know, Rome, there's a great juvenile satire about Rome. It's satire three, where his friend is like, I've got to get the hell out of here, <laughs> right? It's so right. horrible <laughs> for all these reasons. But then at the end, juveniles like okay well I'm staying so see you later I know it's horrible too but I'm I can't leave right so sometimes Rome has that effect on you but um but I think I have to say Rome and I would say in particular I love the Campo dei Fiori and um I when I lived there I lived in Rome when I was in undergrad with the University of Washington program for a semester and we lived in the Campo dei Fiori 
Um, so going there now just evokes a lot of nostalgia for me. I love going to the market. I love going to the Forno and getting some pizza Bianca. Like it's sort of a walk down memory lane for me um, to just be in that particular neighborhood. Um, just lots of good memories and um you know, just a bustling place. There's good shopping in there. There's a little bit of everything. There's some good restaurants in there. So it's, it's one of my, my special spots. It's not necessarily like an ancient spot, you know, it's where the theater of Pompey was, but, um, but for me that just that, that general neck of the woods always, um, I'm always happy to be there. Number three, what is your favorite work of classical literature or your favorite classical author? Oh my gosh, this is such a difficult question. So honestly, I don't know if this is a cop out or not, but I'm going to say Homer. I just love, I just love Homer. What can I say? I mean, the Iliad in particular, but also the Odyssey are maybe my most favorite texts to teach. I feel like they just offer us so much. I always tell my students, hey, I'm always really excited about teaching Homer, but I say, this is the there's no better story than this one. There's a reason why ancient people were obsessed with Homer and it's because it's so great. And it's the story of what it means to be a human being. It really offers you all the facets of life that are important, what it means to be young, what it means to grow up, what it means to love somebody and and be married. Right. Um, What it means to be like, a regular human and not a god (laughs) you know I just feel like we hear from women what that experience is like I just feel like it offers us sort of it's like a I don't know it's like an instruction manual I'm telling you for just you know how to live in this world and so I never get tired of it I I think as you go through life, it offers you different lessons. I mean, I feel like I loved the Iliad when I was young, but now that I'm old and I'm married, I love the Odyssey because I know what it's like to just want to be home with your your (laughs) husband um, or your wife. So, you know, I'm going to say Homer. I mean, he really can't be beat. Absolutely. Okay. Number four, your favorite movie or television program about the classical world? Okay, so I have to say Clash of the Titans, the 1980s one, because honestly, I watched it like a hundred times when I was a kid and I wouldn't be here right now if it wasn't for that silly movie, which, you know, watching it now, of course, you're like, oh my gosh, this is so so absurd. But, you know, as a kid, we had a videotape at our house that my grandpa made for us that had Clash of the Titans and Jason and the Argonauts on it. And I mean... That thing probably, you know, broke from just how many watches it got. So it's so formative for me, that movie, that I really think nothing else um, could really ever take its place. Uh, So you can tell I'm a big nostalgia person. (laughs) Hey, I I am a child of the 80s, too, and I understand what you mean. Yeah, I mean, I just it's 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 like in there, you know, it's uh, it's it's a part of my DNA. So so Clash of the Titans, it's got to be. Okay. Number five, your favorite character in classical mythology or classical literature? Gosh, this is another like really, really difficult question, but I'm going to say Medea. I don't, I I might change my mind, but today you caught me on Medea. I've just been thinking about her a lot. Um, I did a podcast episode 
a couple months ago talking about her influence on feminism in the modern world. And, you know, she's such a polarizing figure. Every time I teach the media, um, you know, I feel like we have the most heated and passionate debates about her. People love her. People hate her. I I don't know if you could tell it's like a theme in my life that I'm drawn to these very like (laughs) polarizing figures. Um, And, you know, she just is a sort of a, a conundrum because you, you, I have this weird sympathy for her and I love her, but she's also abhorrent and she is a child murderer. Right. And so she's able to provoke, I think these really conflicting feelings, um, that, uh, I don't know. I, she gets in your head also. And, and I, uh, kind of can't, you can't stop thinking about her. I can't stop thinking about that story. That story is still so resonant for us in the modern world. And just a powerful female figure for me as a feminist, as someone who works on sexuality and gender, she's super important um, just in terms of, she's like a focalizer of so many of the important aspects of what it meant to be a woman in the ancient world, even though she was not a real woman. I want to put that out there, but um the debates that like her story brings up, I think are just, they're still relevant. And um, yeah, she just, she's a witchy woman. What can I say? She's sort of enchants us all. So, uh, so I'm saying Medea for that. Great answer. <clears throat> Finally, number six, what is your favorite Latin expression or quotation? Ah, oh, gosh. You know, I'm, a, I'm honestly for being a words person. I'm like terrible at that. Um, I'm terrible at like remembering like movie quotes. I can't, I'm, I'm not, my brain's not built for that. So, um, when I was young, I was always like Duke's femina facti, right? So Dido in the, in Virgil's Aeneid, I loved that phrase because it was sort of feminist, um, had a feminist ring to it. Um, I think my sign at the Women's March a few years ago said Duke's Femina Facti on it. Nice. Um, and so I do think that's probably it in terms of ancient the ancient world. But lately, I got to tell you, I've been reading a lot of old Latin, and which this isn't old Latin necessarily, but I've been reading like Lucilius and um, Ennius and stuff. And uh, Ubi Uber Ibi tuber is also one that I've been really loving lately because I think it's so, I don't know. I feel like it's very relevant right now. So, you know, where there's abundance, there's malignancy. I just feel like we're just so living in that moment right now of, um, that could, that could be relevant to a lot of different aspects of our modern world right now. But, um, so I thought I'd throw that one in there as a bonus, but I think my Duke's Femina Facti is the one I'm probably going to stick with for for the duration here. Fantastic. Well, hey, Kiara, thank you so much for coming on the Quintilian podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you. And I'm glad that you left California behind because you've been a great asset to our classical community here in Tennessee. Well, thank you so much, Ryan. This has been really fun. It's great to recap all these different aspects of my experience. And um, I just thank you for inviting me. And thank you for your kind words about my contributions. I love being a part of this classics community here in Tennessee, and I, I'm not going anywhere, so I'm, I'm here. So I hope we'll talk again soon.